the religious affections, Jonathan Edwards. And his grace increases, the field opens more and more to a distant view, until the soul is swallowed up with the vastness of the object, and the person is astonished to think how much it becomes him to love this God and this glorious Redeemer that is so love man, and how little he does love. And so the more he apprehends, the more the smallness of his grace and love appears strange and wonderful, and therefore he is more ready to think that others are beyond him. For wondering at the littleness of his own grace, he can scarcely believe that so strange a thing happens to other saints. It is amazing to him that one that is really a child of God and that has actually received the saving benefits of that unspeakable love of Christ should love so little. And he is apt to look upon it as a thing peculiar to himself, a strange and exempt instance, for he sees only the outside of other Christians, but he sees his own inside. Here the reader may possibly object that love to God is really increased in proportion as the knowledge of God is increased. And therefore, how should an increase of knowledge in a saint make his love appear less in comparison of what is known? To which I answer, that although grace and the love of God in the saints be answerable to the degree of knowledge or sight of God, yet it is not in proportion to the object seen and known. The soul of a saint, by having something of God open to sight, is convinced of much more than is seen. There is something seen that is wonderful, and that sight brings with it a strong conviction of something vastly beyond that is not yet immediately seen. So that the soul at the same time is astonished at its ignorance, and that it knows so little, as well as that it loves so little. And as a soul in a spiritual view is convinced of infinitely more in the object, yet beyond sight, so it is convinced of the capacity of the soul to know vastly more, if the clouds and darkness were but removed. This causes the soul in the enjoyment of a spiritual view to complain greatly of spiritual ignorance and lack of love, and to long and reach after more knowledge and more love. Grace and the love of God in the most eminent saints in this world is truly very little in comparison of what it ought to be. The highest love that ever any attain in this life is poor, cold, exceedingly low, and not worthy to be named in comparison of what our obligations appear to be. And this will appear from the joint consideration of these two things. Number one... The reason God has given us to love Him and the manifestations He has made of His infinite glory in His Word and in His works, and particularly in the gospel of His Son, and what He has done for sinful man by Him. And two, the capacity there is in the soul of man by those intellectual faculties which God has given it of seeing and understanding the reasons which God has given us to love Him. How small indeed is the love of the most eminent saint on earth in comparison of what these things jointly consider do require, 
Grace tends to convince men of this, and especially eminent grace, for grace is of the nature of light and brings truth to view. And therefore he that has much grace apprehends much more than others the great height to which his love ought to ascend. And he sees better than others how little a way he has risen towards that height. And when he estimates his love by the whole height of his duty, it appears astonishingly little and low in his eyes. And the eminent saint, having such a conviction of the high degree in which he ought to love God, is shown not only the littleness of his grace, but the greatness of his remaining corruption. In order to judge how much corruption or sin we have remaining in us, we must take our measure from that height to which the rule of our duty extends. The whole of the distance we are at from that height is sin. For failing of duty is sin, otherwise our duty is not our duty. And by how much the more we fall short of our duty, so much the more sin have we. Sin is no other than disagreeableness in a moral agent to the law or rule of its duty. And therefore the degree of sin is to be judged of by the rule. So much disagreeableness to the rule, so much sin, whether it be in defect or excess. Therefore if men in their love to God do not come up halfway to that height which duty requires then they have more corruption in their hearts than grace, because there is more goodness wanting than is there. All that is lacking is sin. It is an abominable defect, and appears so to the saints, especially those that are imminent. It appears exceedingly abominable to them that Christ should be loved so little, and thanks so little for his dying love. It is in their eyes hateful ingratitude. And then the increase of grace has a tendency another way to cause the saints to think their deformity vastly more than their goodness. It not only tends to convince them that their corruption is much greater than their goodness, which is indeed the case, but it also tends to cause the deformity that there is in the least sin, or the least degree of corruption, to appear so great as vastly to outweigh all the beauty there is in their greatest holiness. The least sin against an infinite God has an infinite hatefulness or deformity in it. But the highest degree of holiness in a creature has not an infinite loveliness in it, and therefore the loveliness of it is as nothing in comparison of the deformity of the least sin. That every sin has infinite deformity and hatefulness in it is much more demonstrably evident, because what the evil or iniquity or hatefulness of sin consists in is a violating of an obligation or the being or doing contrary to what we should be or do or are obliged to. And therefore, by how much the greater the obligation is that is violated, so much the greater is the iniquity and hatefulness of the violation. But certainly our obligation to love and honor any being is in some proportion to his loveliness and honorableness, or to his worthiness to be loved and honored by us, which is the same thing.
We are surely under greater obligation to love a more lovely being than a less lovely. And if a being be infinitely lovely or worthy to be loved by us, then our obligations to love him are infinitely great. And therefore, whatever is contrary to this love has in it infinite iniquity, deformity, and unworthiness. But on the other hand, with respect to our holiness or love to God, there is not an infinite worthiness in that. The sin of the creature against God is ill-deserving and hateful in proportion to the distance there is between God and the creature. The greatness of the object and the meanness and inferiority of the subject aggravates it. But it is the reverse with regard to the worthiness of the respect of the creature to God. It is worthless and not worthy in proportion to the meanness of the subject. So much the greater the distance between God and the creature, so much the less is the creature's respect worthy of God's notice or regard. A great degree of superiority increases the obligation on the inferior to regard the superior, and so makes the lack of regard more hateful. But a great degree of inferiority diminishes the worth of the regard of the inferior, because the more he is inferior, the less he is worthy of notice. The less he is, the less is what he can offer worth. For he can offer no more than himself in offering his best respect. And therefore, as he is little and little worth, so is his respect little worth. And the more a person has of true grace and spiritual light, the more will it appear thus to him. The more will he appear to himself infinitely deformed by reason of sin. And the less will the goodness that is in his grace or good experience appear in proportion to it. For indeed it is nothing to it. It is less than a drop to the ocean. For finite bears no proportion at all to that which is infinite. But the more a person has a spiritual light, the more do things appear to him in this respect as they are indeed. Hence it most demonstrably appears that true grace is of that nature that the more a person has of it, with remaining corruption, the less does his goodness and holiness appear in proportion to his deformity, and not only to his past deformity, but to his present deformity, and the sin that now appears in his heart, and the abominable defects of his highest and best affections and brightest experiences. The nature of many high religious affections and great discoveries, as they are called in many persons that I have been acquainted with, is to hide and cover over the corruption of their hearts, and to make it seem to them as if all their sin were gone, and to leave them without complaints of any hateful evil left in them, though it may be they cry out much of their past unworthiness. This is a sure and certain evidence that their discoveries, as they call them, are darkness and not light. It is darkness that hides men's pollution and deformity, but light let into the heart discovers it, searches it out in its secret corners, and makes it plainly to appear 
especially that penetrating, all-searching light of God's holiness and glory. It is true that saving discoveries may for the present hide corruption in one sense. They restrain the positive exercise of it, such as malice, envy, covetousness, lasciviousness, murmuring, and so on. But they bring corruption to light in that which is privative, that there is not more love, not more humility, not more thankfulness. These defects appear most hateful in the eyes of those who have the most eminent exercises of grace. They are very burdensome and cause the saints to exclaim against their leanness and odious pride and ingratitude. And whatever positive exercises of corruption at any time arise and mingle themselves with imminent actings of grace, grace will exceedingly magnify the view of them and render their appearance far more heinous and horrible. The more imminent saints are, and the more they have of the light of heaven in their souls, the more do they appear to themselves as the most imminent saints in the world do to the saints and angels in heaven. How can we rationally suppose the most eminent saints on earth appear to them, if beheld any otherwise, and covered over with the righteousness of Christ, and their deformity swallowed up and hid in the coruscation of the beams of his abundant glory and love? How can we suppose our most ardent love and praises appear to them that behold the beauty and glory of God without a veil? How does our highest thankfulness for the dying love of Christ appear to them who see Christ as he is, who know as they are known, and see the glory of the person of him that died and the wonders of his dying love without any cloud of darkness? And how do they look on the deepest reverence and humility with which worms of the dust on earth approach that infinite majesty which they behold? Do they appear great to them, or so much as worthy of the name of reverence and humility? The reason why the highest attainments of the saints on earth appear so mean to them is because they dwell in the light of God's glory and see God as He is. And it is in this respect with the saints on earth it is, as it is with the saints in heaven, in proportion as they are more eminent in grace. I would not be understood to mean that the saints on earth have in all respects the worst opinion of themselves when they have most of the exercises of grace. In many respects it is otherwise. With respect to the positive exercises of corruption, they may appear to themselves freest and best, when grace is most in exercise, and worst, when the actings of grace are lowest. And when they compare themselves with themselves at different times, they may know, when grace is in lively exercise, that it is better with them than it was before, though before in the time of it they did not see so much badness as they see now. And when afterwards they sink again in the frame of their minds, they may know that they sink and have a new argument of their great remaining corruption, and a rational conviction of a greater vileness than they saw before, 
and many have more of a sense of guilt and a kind of legal sense of their sinfulness by far than when in the lively exercise of grace. But yet it is true and demonstrable from the forementioned considerations that the children of God never have so much of a sensible and spiritual conviction of their deformity and so great and quick and abasing a sense of their present vileness and odiousness as when they are highest in the exercise of true and pure grace. And never are they so much disposed to set themselves low among Christians as then. And thus he that is greatest in the kingdom or most eminent in the church of Christ is the same that humbles himself as the least infant among them agreeable to that great saying of Christ, Matthew 18.4. A true saint may know that he has some true grace, and the more grace there is, the more easily is it known as was observed and proved before. But yet it does not follow that an eminent saint is easily sensible that he is an eminent saint, when compared with others. I will not deny that it is possible that he that has much grace and is an eminent saint may know it, but he will not be apt to know it. It will not be a thing obvious to him that he is better than others and has higher experiences and attainments is not a foremost thought, nor is it that which from time to time readily offers itself. It is a thing that is not in his way, but lies far out of sight. He must take pains to convince himself of it. There will be need of a great command of reason and a high degree of strictness and care in arguing to convince himself. And if he be rationally convinced by a very strict consideration of his own experiences, compared with the great appearances of low degrees of grace in some other saints, it will hardly seem real to him that he has more grace than they, and he will be apt to lose the conviction that he has by pains obtained. Nor will it seem at all natural to him to act upon that supposition. This may be laid down as an infallible thing that the person who is apt to think that he is compared with others is a very eminent saint, much distinguished in Christian experience, in whom this is a first thought that rises of itself and naturally offers itself, he is certainly mistaken. He is no eminent saint, but under the great prevailings of a proud and self-righteous spirit. And if this be habitual with a man, and is statedly the prevailing temper of his mind, he is no saint at all. Another infallible sign of spiritual pride is present when persons think highly of their humility. False experiences are commonly attended with a counterfeit humility. It is the very nature of a counterfeit humility to be highly conceited of itself. False religious affections have generally a tendency, especially when raised to a great height, to make persons think that their humility is great, and accordingly to take much notice of their great attainments in this respect, and admire them. But eminently gracious affections, I scruple not to say it, are ever more of a contrary tendency and have universally a contrary effect in those that have them. They indeed make them very sensible what reason there is that they should be deeply humbled, 
and cause them earnestly to thirst and long after it. But they make their present humility, or that which they have already attained to, to appear small, and their remaining pride great and exceedingly abominable. The reason why a proud person should be apt to think his humility great, and why a very humble person should think his humility small, may be easily seen if it be considered that it is natural for persons, in judging of the degree of their own humiliation, to take their measure from that which they esteem their proper height, or the dignity wherein they properly stand. That may be great humiliation in one that is no humiliation at all in another, because the degree of honorableness or considerableness wherein each does properly stand is very different. For some great man to stoop to loose the latchet of the shoes of another great man, his equal, or to wash his feet, would be taken notice of as an act of abasement in him and he being sensible of his own dignity would look upon it so himself. But if a poor slave is seen stooping to unloose the shoes of a great prince, nobody will take any notice of this as any act of humiliation in him, or token of any great degree of humility, nor would the slave himself, unless he be horribly proud and ridiculously conceited of himself, and if after he had done it he should in his talk and behavior show that he thought his abasement great in it, and had his mind much upon it as an evidence of his being very humble, would not everybody cry out upon him, Who do you think yourself to be that you should think this, that you have done such a deep humiliation? This would make it plain to a demonstration that this slave was swollen with a high degree of pride and vanity of mind, as much as if he declared in plain terms, I think myself to be some great one. And the manner is no less plain and certain when worthless, vile, and loathsome worms of the dust put a similar construction on their acts of abasement before God, and think it a token of great humility in them that they acknowledge themselves to be so mean and unworthy, and behave themselves as those that are so inferior. The very reason why such outward acts and such inward exercises look like great abasement in such an one is because he has a high conceit of himself. Whereas if he thought himself more justly, these things would appear nothing to him, and his humility in them worthy of no regard. He would rather be astonished at his pride that one so infinitely despicable and vile is brought no lower before God. When he says in his heart, This is a great act of humiliation. It is certainly a sign of great humility in me that I should feel thus and do so. His meaning is, This is great humility for me, for such an one as I am, that am so considerable and worthy. He considers how low he is now brought, and compares this with the height of dignity on which he, in his heart, thinks he properly stands. And the distance appears very great, and he calls it all mere humility, and as such admires it. Whereas in him that is truly humble and really sees his own vileness and loathsomeness before God, the distance appears the other way. When he, when he is brought lowest of all, it does not 
now appear to him that he is brought below his proper station, but that he has not come to it. He appears to himself yet vastly above it. He longs to get lower that he may come to it, but appears at a great distance from it. And this distance he calls pride. And therefore his pride appears great to him, and not his humility. For although he is brought much lower than he used to be, yet it does not appear to him worthy of the name of humiliation. For him that is so infinitely mean and detestable to come down to a place which, though it be lower than what he used to assume, is yet vastly higher than what is proper for him. Men would hardly count it worthy of the name of humility in a contemptible slave to formerly affected to be a prince, to have a spirit so far brought down as to take the place of a nobleman, when this is still so far above his proper station. All men in the world, in judging of the degree of their own and others' humility, consider two things. The real degree of dignity they stand in, and the degree of abasement with the relation it bears to that real dignity. Thus a complying with the same low place or low act may be an evidence of great humility in one, the evidence is but little or no humility in another. But truly humble Christians have so mean an opinion of their real dignity that all their self-abasement when considered with relation to that and compared to that, appears very small to them. It does not seem to them to be any great humility, or any abasement to be made much of for such poor, vile, abject creatures as they to lie at the foot of God. The degree of humility is to be judged of by the degree of abasement, and the degree of the cause for abasement. But he that is truly and eminently humble never thinks his humility great. The cause why he should be abased appears so great, and the abasement of the frame of his heart so greatly short of it, that he takes much more notice of his pride than his humility. Every one that has been conversant with souls under convictions of sin knows that those who are greatly convinced of sin are not apt to think themselves greatly convinced. And the reason is this. Men judge of the degree of their own convictions of sin by two things, jointly considered. The degree of sense which they have of guilt and pollution, and the degree of cause they have for such a sense, and the degree of their real sinfulness. It is really no argument of any great conviction of sin for some men to think themselves to be sinful beyond most others in the world, because they are so indeed, very plainly and notoriously. And therefore a far less conviction of sin may incline such an one to think so than another. He must be very blind indeed not to be sensible of it. But he that is truly under great convictions of sin naturally thinks that the cause he has to be sensible of guilt and pollution is greater than others have. And therefore he ascribes his sensibleness of this to the greatness of his sin, and not to the greatness of his sensibility. It is natural for one under great convictions to think himself one of the greatest of sinners in reality, 
and also that it is so very plainly and evidently, for the greater his convictions are, the more plain and evident it seems to be to him, and therefore it necessarily seems to him so plain and so easy to him to see it, that it may be seen without much conviction. That man is under great convictions, whose conviction is great in proportion to his sin. But no man that is truly under great convictions thinks his conviction great in proportion to his sin. For if he does, it is a certain sign that he inwardly thinks his sin small. And if that be the case, it is a certain evidence that his conviction is small. And this, by the way, is the main reason that persons when under a work of humiliation are not sensible of it at the time of it. And as it is with conviction of sin, just so it is by parity of reasoning, with respect to men's conviction or sensibleness of their own meanness and vileness, their own blindness and impotence, and all that low sense that a Christian has of himself in the exercise of evangelical humiliation. So that in a high degree of this, the saints are never disposed to think their sensibleness of their own meanness, filthiness, and impotence to be great, for it never appears great to them considering the cause. An eminent saint is not apt to think himself eminent in anything. All his graces and experiences are ready to appear to him to be comparatively small, but especially his humility. There is nothing that appertains to Christian experience and true piety that is so much out of his sight as his humility. He is a thousand times more quick-sighted to discern his pride than his humility, that he easily discerns and is apt to take much notice of, but he hardly discerns his humility. On the contrary, the deluded hypocrite that is under the power of spiritual pride is so blind to nothing as his pride, and so quick-sighted to nothing as the shows of humility that are in him. The humble Christian is more apt to find fault with his own pride than with other men's. He is apt to put the best construction on others' words and behavior, and to think that none are so proud as himself. But the proud hypocrite is quick to discern the mote in his brother's eye, in this respect, while he sees nothing of the beam in his own. He is very often denouncing others' pride, finding fault with others' apparel and way of living, and is affected ten times as much with his neighbor's ring or ribband as with all the filthiness of his own heart. From the disposition there is in hypocrites to think highly of their humility, it comes about that counterfeit humility is forward to put itself forth to view. Those that have it are apt to be much in speaking of their humiliation, setting them forth in high terms and making a great outward show of humility in affected looks, gestures, manner of speech, meanness of apparel, or some affected singularity. So it was of old with the false prophet, Zechariah 13.4. So it was with the hypocritical Jews, Isaiah 58.5. And so Christ tells us it was with the Pharisees, Matthew 6.16. But it is contrary-wise with true humility. They that have it are not apt to display their eloquence in setting it forth, or to speak of the degree of their abasement in strong terms. It is an observation of Mr. Jeremiah Jones, 1693-1724, in his excellent treatise on the canon of the New Testament, that the evangelist Mark, 
who is a companion of Peter, and is supposed to have written his gospel under the direction of that apostle, when he mentions Peter's repentance after his denying his master, does not use such strong terms to set it forth as the other evangelists. He only uses these words. When he thought thereon he wept. Mark 14.72 Whereas the other evangelists say thus, He went out and wept bitterly. Matthew 26.75 Luke 22.62 it, it does not affect to show itself in any singular outward meanness of apparel or way of living agreeable to what is implied in Matthew 6.17 But thou, when thou fastest, Anoint thine head, and wash thy face, Colossians 2.23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will-worship, in humility, and neglecting of the body. Nor is true humility a noisy thing. It is not loud and boisterous. The scripture represents it of a contrary nature. Ahab, when he had a visible humility... A resemblance of true humility went softly, 1 Kings 26-27. A penitent in the exercise of true humiliation is represented as still and silent. Lamentation 3.28 He sitteth alone and keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. And silence is mentioned as what attends humility, Proverbs 30.32. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. Thus I have particularly and largely shown the nature of that true humility that attends holy affections in its tendency to cause persons to think meanly of their attainments in religion as compared with the attainments of others, and particularly of their attainments in humility, and has shown the contrary tendency of spiritual pride to dispose persons to think their attainments in these respects to be great. I have insisted the longer on this, because I look upon it as a matter of great importance, as it affords a certain distinction between true and counterfeit humility, and also as this disposition of hypocrites to look on themselves as better than others is what God has declared to be very hateful to him. A smoke in his nose, and a fire that burneth all the day. Isaiah 55, 5 it is mentioned as an instance of the pride of the inhabitants of that holy city, as it was called, Jerusalem, that they esteemed themselves far better than the people of Sodom, and so looked upon them as worthy to be overlooked and disregarded by them. Ezekiel 16.56 For thy sister Sodom was not mentioned by thy mouth in the day of thy pride. Let not the reader lightly pass over these things in application to himself. If he once have taken it in that it is a bad sign for a person to be apt to think himself a better saint than others, there will arise a blinding prejudice in your own favor, and there will probably be need of a great strictness of self-examination in order to determine whether it be so with you. If on the proposal of the question you answer... No, it seems to me none are as so bad as I. 
Do not let the matter pass off so, but examine again whether or no you do not think yourself better than others on this very account, because you imagine you think so meanly of yourself. Have not you a high opinion of this humility? And if you answer again, No, I have not a high opinion of my humility, it seems to me I am as proud as the devil. Yet examine again whether self-conceit do not rise up under this cover. Whether on this very account that you think yourself as proud as a devil, you do not think yourself to be very humble. From this opposition that there is between the nature of true and of counterfeit humility, as to the esteem that the subjects of them have of themselves, arises a manifold contrariety of temper and behavior. A truly humble person, having such a mean opinion of his righteousness and holiness, is poor in spirit. For a person to be poor in spirit is to be in his own sense and apprehension poor, as to what is in him, and to be of an answerable disposition. Therefore, a truly humble person, especially one eminently humble, naturally behaves himself in many respects as a poor man. The poor useth entreaties, but the rich answereth roughly. A poor man is not disposed to quick and high resentment when he is among the rich. He is apt to yield to others, for he knows others are above him. He is not stiff and self-willed. He is patient with hard fare. He expects no other than to be despised and takes it patiently. He does not take it heinously that he is overlooked, but little regarded. He is prepared to be in a low place. He readily honors his superiors. He takes reproofs quietly. He readily honors others as above him. He easily yields to be taught, and does not claim much to his understanding and judgment. He is not over nice or humorsome, and has his spirit subdued to hard things. He is not assuming, nor apt to take much upon him, but it is natural for him to be subject to others. Thus it is with the humble Christian. Humility is, as the great Maastricht expresses it, a kind of holy pusillanimity. A man that is very poor is a beggar, so is he that is poor in spirit. There is a great difference between those affections that are gracious and those that are false. Under the former, the person continues still a poor beggar at God's gates, exceeding empty and needy. But the latter make men appear to themselves rich and increased with goods and not very necessitous. They have a great stock in their own imagination for their subsistence. Thomas Shepard wrote, The spirit ever keeps a man poor and vile in his own eyes and empty. When the man hath got some knowledge, and can discourse pretty well, and has some taste of the heavenly gift, some sweet elapses of grace, and so his conscience is pretty well quieted. And if he hath got some answer to his prayers, and hath sweet affections, he grows full. And having ease to his conscience, casts off sense and daily groaning under sin. And hence the spirit of prayer dies, he loses his esteem of God's ordinances, feels not such need of them, or gets no good, feels no life or power by them. This is a woeful condition of some, but yet they know it not. But now he that is filled with the spirit, the Lord empties him, and the more, the longer he lives. So that though others think he needs not much grace, yet he accounts himself the poorest. In quote, 
parable of the ten virgins. A poor man is modest in his speech and behavior. So and much more and more certainly and universally is one that is poor in spirit. He is humble and modest in his behavior among men. It is in vain for any to pretend that they are humble and as little children before God when they are haughty, assuming, and impudent in their behavior among men. The apostle informs us that the design of the gospel is to cut off all glorying, not only before God, but also before men. Romans 4, 1 and 2 Some pretend to great humiliation, that are very haughty, audacious, and assuming in their external appearance and behavior, but they ought to consider those scriptures, Psalm 131, 1. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters, or in things too high for me. Proverbs six sixteen and 17, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him a proud look, and so on. Chapter 21, 4 And high look in a proud heart are sin. Psalm 28, 27 Thou will bring down high looks. In Psalm 101, verse 5 Him that hath an high look in a proud heart will not I suffer. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 Charity vaunteth not itself, doth not behave itself unseemly. There is a certain amiable modesty and fear arising from humility that belongs to a Christian behavior among men that the scripture often speaks of, 1 Peter 3, 15. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you with meekness and fear. Romans 13, 7 Fear to whom fear. Second Corinthians 7.15 Whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Ephesians 6.5 Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. 1 Peter 3, 2, While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. 1 Timothy 2, 9, That women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety. In this respect, a Christian is like a little child. A little child is modest before men, and his heart is apt to be possessed with fear and awe among them. The same Spirit will dispose a Christian to honor all men, 1 Peter 2.17. Honor all men. A humble Christian is not only disposed to honor the saints and his behavior, but others also, in all those ways that do not imply a visible approbation of their sins. Thus Abraham, the great pattern of believers, honored the children of Heth. Genesis 23.7. Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land. This is a remarkable instance of a humble behavior towards them that were out of Christ, and that Abraham knew to be accursed, and therefore would by no means suffer his servant to take a wife to his son from among them. And Esau's wives, being of these children of Heth, were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. 
So Paul honored Festus, Acts 26.25. I am not mad, most noble Festus. Not only will Christian humility dispose persons to honor those wicked men that are out of the visible church, but also false brethren and persecutors, as Jacob when he was in an excellent frame, having just been wrestling all night with God and received the blessing, honored Esau, his false and persecuting brother. Genesis 33.3 Jacob bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother Esau. So he called him Lord and commanded all his family to honor him in like manner. Thus I have endeavored to describe the heart and behavior of one that is governed by a truly gracious humility as exactly agreeable to the scriptures as I am able. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.